Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. Nestled, I love that word, nestled in a secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen. I have seen oh. your woman beat up a guy. Yes, right. That was cool. Yes, that was cool. <laughs> that was cool. Of course, the guy, ladies and gentlemen, you have to visualize She's this She's no puss either. Oh, no. you got to visualize this. Lori Downey Jr., Matt Allen, Burl Bear, sitting at like the equivalent of a picnic table, right? On the picnic table next to us, sitting on it, is a guy who's kind of overhearing our conversation. We're just babbling away, having minding our own business. Suddenly, this guy leaps through the air. <laughs> yeah. And lands on top of Magic Matt Allen. Yeah, he obviously knew who I was and was not a fan. Oh, no, no, he, well, he didn't like that uh, serious uh, 60s on 70. 70s well, on is. 7. Wait, Lori, Lori just walked in. She knows the story well. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Lori takes one look at this insanity... And she, <laughs> she beats the crap out of the guy, chases him across the parking lot. Oh, and I told you to hold the guy's purse? Yeah. Hold yeah. my purse. Hold my purse. I'll be right back. I got to go beat this guy up. And I did. Roundhouse yeah. kicks, I knocked him down, and then I knew he was going to go in the front of the building. By, by the way, your caller is there. Just hang on there, and, and thank you for your patience. Yeah. Wow. Which he did go to the front, and he was telling the bartender that... He, you know, this guy was beating the crap out of him. I said, yeah, that guy's me. You want some more? <laughs> that was it. Uh, yeah, but my classic, the classic moment to me was when you said, Burl, hold my purse. Hold my purse. <laughs> I said, get in your booth. Yeah, I must, back tell, in your booth. I must tell you, that story is 100% factual, and uh, there's no editorializing there. That truly happened. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way it happened, moving west. Well, be careful. <laughs> moving west. We have a guest today. Yeah. I'm she's really excited. She's probably horrified to be on the show. <laughs> yeah, Who is it? Already she's contacting her agent going, I think you've made a terrible mistake. Yeah, I, I, I would be. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I said, oh, no, I, I didn't sign up for this. I, my, my, I have trust issues with my psychiatrist, and now I don't know about these guys either. <laughs> You do have trust issues. Don't trust me on this. I trust well, you. you. know, the world is not that trustworthy a place, Burl. Yes, on that. We should well, why don't you introduce yourself because I'm lazy. Fine. Uh, this is Catherine Ellison. Um, I, um, I just published a book with Wild Blue Press called Mothers and Murderers, a true story of love, lies, obsession, and second chances. Hi, Catherine. <laughs> Welcome. Hi there. There's the demon dog of true crime, Frank C. Gerardo, Jr., Wow. A new nickname I've never had before, but I'm appreciative. <laughs> if you gave it to him, so it's going to stick. <laughs> and uh, we have Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, who knows more about your life than you do. Oh, that's great. Hi, Mark. Hello. <laughs> and uh, I'm here just pretending I know what I'm doing. However, I must tell, ladies and gentlemen, that I, I was reading this thing that you wrote. You do that, tend to do that being a writer. About you had a book that you thought was going to be a piece of cake to write? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Any time I have thought a book is going to be a piece of cake to write, it turns out to be the nightmare from hell. Exactly. That's what happened. Yeah, you live through I it. have had a book that was a piece of cake, though. I wrote a book about Imelda Marcos, and that was absolutely easy. Oh, I bet. Just got a shoe catalog. and <laughs> You can't make it up. Did you spend time with Imelda Marcos? I 
did. I got to interview her. Um, I got to know a lot about her as I was covering the Philippines in the 1980s. Well, you, uh, you've covered a lot of territory here. <laughs> I sure have. Okay. Catherine is a San Jose Mercury News, yes. right? San Jose Mercury News, right? That's right. That's where I started out. You from there? And is that I went from? to Mexico for them and then went to Brazil for the Miami Herald. Ah, okay. So all night Ritter. Exactly. Before it imploded. <laughs> they all uh, Did they start outsourcing their local news reporters to India? Oh, God. <laughs> Pretty much. But the <laughs> LA Times did anymore. that. No. Right, Mark? <laughs> yes. That's Mark. But, but I know. This, this true crime book, even though it took a long time to write, you've written several books, right? You know, Imelda Marcos, books about parenting, and books about... Goat farming in Australia. <laughs> no, I've written three books about ADHD. That one. Is book that because Imelda. you have it or because you don't want it? Oh, I definitely have it. Um, I found out when my son was diagnosed, like a lot of women my age end up doing, because we go undetected in grade school. Well, well, boys who act out are, you know, get all the attention. That's wow. right. Until yeah. until it gets to teenage years and the girls get all the attention. Yeah. Yeah, I never, I never even realized that women had ADHD. Oh yeah. Every one of my family has it, except without the H. We're too lazy to be hyperactive. <laughs> you don't need to be hyperactive. The name changed in 1987, so now anybody who has it, it said that they have ADHD, but you can have subtypes, subtypes of it, like inattentive or um, uh, disassociative. You know, uh, hyperactive. See, I disassociate because I'm so sociable. <laughs> well, there's a lot of positive qualities with it. I, you know, I'm, I'm assuming if everybody in your family has it, there's a pretty good chance you have it. And oh, I do. I definitely lead, have it. It could lead to a lot of hyper-focusing on interest. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And stimulants yeah. slow you down. Pearl, <laughs> mm. Pearl, Pearl. You need to take some. Yeah. He needs the, uh, the doggy downer. So. I want, but wait, we want to, come on. Now we have, we have, the reason we have Catherine here is to talk about her book. Oh, that's right. <laughs> is that the cat? Really? Yes, absolutely. I, I, wow. I wanted to talk about her mental illness. I thought <laughs> I was here to promote I wouldn't think of it as a mental illness. I think of it as a characteristic. Yeah. And, and Not a character sure defect, but a character <laughs> characteristic. It's a certain kind of personality. Yeah. But it didn't have something to do with this book because this book starts, the whole reason I got involved in this crime was because I made a stupid mistake. Yeah, um, the both mistakes are, the, yeah trial when I was a cub reporter and um, I misparaphrased a prosecutor to make it sound like a woman who hadn't been charged with murder had been charged oh. um, so she sued me for 11 million dollars and that's what did she win it. whoa that's wow really so wait it, wait wait it was so, scary. You're, so you're working for the paper you paraphrase yep. the prosecutor uh, something that's said in court it's, mm -hmm. it's the exact opposite of what the pr prosecutor said it wasn't. The problem is it wasn't the exact opposite. It's it's very interesting if you look at the trial transcript. I'm not excusing it because it was a big mistake. But when he, he was giving his closing argument, and he, it was a murder-for-hire case, and he made the argument that it all started with... He, he actually had Judy Singer, who it, it kind of started with her and went to her husband and went to the two guys that the husband Wait, hired. We'll, we'll and get, then we'll get... He thought she was involved, which he did. Everybody did. But 
it wasn't something I could write. <laughs> I see. So he may have inferred it without actually saying it. You paraphrased it by making it more uh, overt, less of it, yeah, yeah more overt. You just put it word. right out there, like that's, that's that's a great Scrabble word. And then he implied it, and I inferred it. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So then, so you, so you put it in the story, goes through the editing process, and then right away does she sue you, or how does that, how does that work? Does she call asking for a correction? That's right. She called, she called the next day, and they put a correction in the paper. But then two weeks later, I was sitting in the press room, and her lawyer came up to me, and we'd always been getting, you know, we'd got along really well, and you know, but I noticed he wasn't smiling, <laughs> and he handed me a, um, a subpoena, um, which I'd never seen before. So it was, it, it took me by surprise. So what? So this is in the early '80s. 1981. Wow. Okay. So. Did you have 11 million dollars? No, and the newspaper didn't either. Yeah, so no, just say sorry, pal. We haven't got it. <laughs> she she was quite ambitious. <laughs> yeah, good thinking on her part. Maybe she might have thought the paper was rich. I think so, and she was pretty hard up for money at that at that point. But well, she thought her husband was rich too. That's correct. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah. A lot of mistakes in this story. So, so what happened? So what happened with the lawsuit? It went away after about four years. Um, she, because she was getting in all sorts of trouble by then, she stopped pursuing it, and a judge dismissed it. And by that time, I had gotten my act together and wasn't making any more mistakes. And I'd <laughs> gone not of that caliber, anyway. Not no, <laughs> no. I was really from then on. Like anything I wrote, I just eagle-eyed about 14 times. Yeah, be, you'd be obsessive after that. I, would I got obsessive, yeah. And, and you know, the, the thing that's interesting is that in the 80s, you know, you didn't have the internet where you could just go back on, change the change whatever was said, and right. it goes away, like they do today, frequently. Uh, right. I mean, this is like, this was in the paper, probably in the front page, um, or certainly in a prominent position, and then the correction probably ran on Z48. Z, yeah, yeah. And, after the you know, classifieds yeah. for used dogs or right. something. Yeah, and and she and so that I mean that's upsetting in and of itself. They always want it like in the same spot in the same font. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. Could you please put on the front page that I didn't murder anyone and you've let me go? Well, you're, I mean, the paper supported you. That's really cool. I mean, you can imagine it's, this. It's pretty amazing. I wrote an, um, an article about it that hasn't been published yet, but that talks about how in that day, I don't think this exists anymore, but the managing editor felt invested in me, I think. Um, he, he thought I had potential, and I think a lot of conditions were there then that I could get a second chance that I might not be able to get today. Well, that kind of I can mistake. imagine that the editor would probably be like, well, you know, I probably should have read this more closely. Well, the copy editor didn't, didn't see it. That's true. Yeah. But, but it was like, it's just two words. See, if you would have had fact checker Mark C.G. Boyer there, absolutely. he would have caught it. We should have had my back. Yeah. <laughs> there would have been elephants and rhinoceros in the story. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we shouldn't get into the esoterica of newspapers. <laughs> no, no. Let's really. let's like let's let's boost it up a little I'm bit. Bad, we yeah. got some crazy lady who's a <laughs> who's a killer and yeah. a serial lawsuit test. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but just think. I mean, speaking of mistakes, just think how many 
mistakes from human error. There are all the time. You know, Amber Geiger, the Dallas cop who shot the man right. thinking it was her apartment, uh-huh. I don't think that there was anything racial about that. I think she just was distracted and made a really dumb mistake, and you know? paying 10 um, years for it. Huh? 10-year sentence for that. Right. Yeah. And yeah. she has to live with that yeah. forever. Yeah, forever. You know, I mean, it's just, I bet she feels bad. It's it's if you look at her testimony, it's 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 really, it's it's incredibly sad. Yeah, it's. A, you it's know. I mean, it wasn't it nice though that uh, the man's brother came and gave her a big hug and sort of like. Said, Thank you so much. Yeah, I always hated my brother. Like, there was well, there was an understanding moment there that was you know, kind of interesting. That you don't. I've covered a lot of trials and you don't see that a lot. There's a lot of division. Talk about this story, though. I'm fascinated by this story because it's obviously got layers, and and you are obsessed with it, or were. <laughs> That's not a good sign, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Frank, can you? I'm really interested in this story. I, I mean, the you've you were you're obsessed with it. It took you years to actually write it, and so take us from you know the moment that you realized that this was a book. Uh, um, it's hard without giving away a lot of the story. That's our, our audience has a very short-term memory. They won't even remember they heard this tomorrow. So go ahead, tell us everything. <laughs> well, okay, what the heck. It turns out I was right, although unintentionally. Um, so Judy, the, the person who sued me, through a crazy, crazy number of twists and turns, was arrested for murder in 1991. And that's when one of the lawyers that I'd been talking to all along, just because I was fascinated with the case, not because I thought I'd write a book about it, he called me when I was in Mexico, and he said, we'd always joked about, you know, we got to write a book about this. It's just it's just too nutty. I mean, they got away with, uh, her, her lawyer got away with stuff that it would just astound you. It was amazing. Um, so he, we were always saying we should write a book about it, so he called me up just when they were planning to rest her and said, you got to come get the um, trial transcripts and we have to talk about this. And you have to do it fast because he was dying of a brain tumor. So it was it was really sad because he was a really good friend of mine. Um, so I did go back to California and I wasn't sure I wanted to get involved in it again. Um, but I did and, um, and it really was, it really did seem like it was going to write itself because I got so much cooperation. Everybody wanted to talk about the case. There were so many loony things about the case, from the crazy hitman that traveled from Flint to um, California to do the the crime. I mean, they were just bumbling. It, it was amazing that they carried it off. To her role, you know, she was this nice Jewish mother who seemed to be this doting doting mother who baked casseroles and worked for her synagogue, you know, and yet she had this kind of sinister side. And there were just just a number of things that were fascinating. So I sold a um, proposal to Simon and Schuster in in 1991, and they gave me an advance. I did all this research, and then I just couldn't write it. Um, I had a block against it. I think because it was close to home in some ways. And um, would your mom make a lot of casseroles? Hmm? Would your mom make a lot of casseroles? Was that the issue? (laughs) Well, she reminded me in some ways of my own mother, so I think that had to do with it. But 
um, I, and I just kept working on it every time I had a little spare time and, and finally was able to um, finish it. Now, when you finished it the first time, <laughs> was it a Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, and you tell the story of how this all unraveled, or do you put yourself in the story like I used didn't to be? put myself in it the first time. Um, because I didn't realize, I think I wasn't in touch with why I was so obsessed with it, and it was as if that was missing, and and it just seemed artificial. I've never written true crime before, um, and so it was just the facts, ma'am, and it just didn't work. Um, it, it's it's just taken me a while to understand a better way of telling this story. How many rewrites did you go through? How many what? Rewrites. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> she didn't keep didn't have a cal- calculator that goes that high, an abacus. It's horrible. I went through two agents, two writers' groups, several different editors, a uh, number of potential publishers. It was just like, it, I don't know why. I had to, it just seemed like there was no out, out. <laughs> there was no way out. <laughs> oh. uh, when, did you, when, when, when did you get the epiphany on... Uh... To, when did I get you to the, the, the epiphany draft. to give it all up and go to work in a gas station. <laughs> Wait, which, oh, the epiphany of how to write it? Yes. You know, um, it was after my parents died, I have to say. Um, I think that part of the reason I was having such a hard time with it was that it, it touched on a very strong taboo I had in my own family, you know, that you don't air dirty laundry. And it, there was a real parallel with Judy Singer's story in that she created this whole myth about her family, that everything was wonderful. And when you scratch the surface, there was all sorts of horrific stuff going on. And unfortunately, I grew up in a home that was in some way similar, uh, not to that extent, but we had some of the same crazy rules. And I couldn't write it while my parents were alive. Yes, that makes sense. Mark C.G. Boer, make a note that it's 23 minutes past the hour, and I'm going to mention one of my own books. Uh, he keeps track every week we of have that. A, we have a, an office pool on how long it will take before <laughs> Burrow mentions one of his own books. It's Isn't actually it? a new record. <laughs> new, new world record. <laughs> Excuse me. Book Headlock. No, Headshot. I have two books with similar titles. Both well, show Headlock that I'm obsessed with fiction. Head because it's in both books. But in in Headshot, you have a family of nine kids, and it's multi-generational incest from the get-go. And it's just... And then to interview the people for the book, and at the last minute, they go, you can't use anything I said unless you pay me. And I said, there's no budget for the author, let alone the people I'm talking to. Fortunately, the sister, who was the eldest one of the whole group, who had actually gotten some help, uh, and now as a counselor for people with similar issues, said, anything they said, attribute it to me, and I'll sign the papers, you know. The counselor? The therapist? Yeah. Yeah, the sister wow. involved. Isn't that in like story. a violation of... Um... Well, because no, no, no. it's her own family. No, it's her family. It's her oh, family. She yeah. wasn't their doctor, I see. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's just a, you have those family secrets that no one wants to talk about. It could be any number of things, but in this particular case... You couldn't uh, keep track of who was sleeping with who without having a chart and a graph and, you know, various uh, overlays, is, <laughs> no is, pun intended. Is this, so is this that kind of story? Is, is I don't know. I'm just guessing what she's got going okay. on. She's scratching below the surface of her family and 
Maybe they got cooties. I don't know. Well, what, what, what's going on? I mean, I want to know now. I, yeah, now, our my, curiosity my is, is an all-time perverse high. I think I think families like that with so many secrets produce a lot of psychiatrists and investigative journalists. Yes. Because um, you kind of go in the other direction sometimes and just want to spill the beans. Um, it explains a lot. We, yeah, it explains it, a lot. That's <laughs> why I like baked bean wrestling. Okay. Uh, wait, so wait, I, wait I, I gotta. I, so are you from San Jose? <laughs> no, I grew up in San Mateo. Okay, uh, well, I mean the Bay Area, actually, which is a wealthy enclave of San Mateo. Which, which? I'm sorry, I missed that. It's called Hillsboro. Oh, Hillsboro. Okay. Just right. in case Mark is looking. Yeah. Mark's got no, it. Mark, uh, Mark fact knows. He, he had uh, my brother lived in San Mateo. Oh, and then yeah? in Elks Grove near Sacramento. So San Jose in nineteen eighty one was a pretty gritty place, wasn't it? Somewhat. Not it wasn't Silicon Valley. I mean it was it was just becoming Silicon Valley then. It, but it would take some years for it to be as <laughs> renowned as it is today. And but and this homicide took place though in Santa Clara, right? Which Santa is Clara, a, that's which right. Is na- which is neighboring community of San Jose. Correct. And and the circumstances, uh, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a mystery at first, right? Exactly. The um, wealthy businessman is shut down on his town, you know, townhouse door by a stranger. And and when you think when you know these guys, it's just amazing that they did it and they got away with it because the guy who shot him. Um, afterwards, his high school classmates would talk about this guy and say, oh, yeah, we've seen him, you know, just, just recently out in his sandbox playing with his G.I. Joes. I mean, this guy, the he, 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 was, <laughs> he was not your sophisticated hitman. And he'd never shot anything before besides dozens. Um, and he was like, he was, he was this real tall, gangly guy. And before he went up to the doorstep, he sealed himself by taking five microdots of LSD. Wow. As he says, to calm his nerves. To calm his nerves. I could tell which paisley was coming at him and which one was going the other way. <laughs> he, he shot, I mean, it's, it's not funny. I mean, it's really tragic. I mean, the, the first eight bullets, you know, I mean, they completely missed. And he just kept, he just kept firing. And, you know, the fact that the two of them, the two of them got away, and the police for the next two weeks were working on the presumption that it was a drug crime because the victim had tens of thousands of dollars of cocaine in a in a sock in his safe. Whoa. So he'd been selling cocaine or basically giving it away to his friends. So they figured it was drug related at first. The, <laughs> what and what did the what did the victim do for a living besides cocaine? Oh, he worked in his family business. When what was the family business? Selling cocaine. A glass factory, <laughs> glass and mirror. Oh, glass and mirror. Shop. One of the bigger businesses then in the county. I see. So, the owner of a big glass and mirror factory gets shot on the front doorstep of his home, and the police think it's drug related because he's got a sack of coke in the house, but the coke's there, not gone. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, that's one argument against it being drug related. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a big yeah. argument against it being drug exactly, related. Exactly. Yeah. So well, and just to correct, it, it, he wasn't the owner; he was the founder's son. So he just had a nine to five kind of sinecure there. Probably a, a glass factory in Santa Clara or Santa yeah, uh, San Jose. In San Jose. Okay. So, uh, so, so now these shooters are 
on the run. And way, I, so this takes place. They shoot eight times and they don't hit him. So are the okay. neighbors? Why did call, he run by that? Are the are the neighbors calling the police? I mean, well, what's that's a really good question? When the police interviewed the neighbors the next day, everybody said they just thought anybody who said they heard the shots said they thought it was firecrackers or a car backing up. This was a rifle, amazing. right? It was a rifle that was used. Yeah. Wow. And from how far away? Um, I think it was, you know, like ten feet. I mean, I don't know. It was. Um, oh, so it's not. It's not like across the street with a scope. No, 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 no. He walked right up to the. He walked right up to the door with a rifle. The rifle, the rifle and yeah. hallucinating like hell. Yeah, well, you, yeah. you would think that after eight shots, there would be enough time for the victim to attempt to disarm his assailant. Or go get to some disarm coke. Disarm him? Yeah. Or at least attempt well, to I mean, do uh, wait, 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 wait. Maybe this is an assault rifle. Yeah, this was one of those where you had to like cock the gun and like you know. It's it's not like a twenty two, like a like a you know your dad's twenty two with a bolt action. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom. Oh, magic bullet. We got Kennedy with that one. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, this is like, what kind of, this is like an assault rifle or something? A Marlin Glenfield. Um, yeah, I don't think it was an assault guy rifle. Over here. No, smart guy. Semi, <laughs> semi-automatic. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, yeah. But um, he, I don't think Howard, the victim, was at all prepared to try to take a gun away. I think yeah. he was just completely stunned and terrified to see what was going on so, and so, he jumped behind his door and tried to lock it um, oh, and wow. uh, Andrew Granger the trigger man kept firing through the door wow and, and that, okay wow that, that so makes he, sense yeah uh huh the door's not going to stop those bullets though no not, not the way they make these doors nowadays wow <sighs> and where, right. so in this townhome is in Santa Clara like like is it in a nice part of Santa Clara an older part yeah, of- yeah. Yeah, he was he was very very wealthy. The, the the guy who the victim was. Sock full of cocaine. Sock full of cocaine. Yeah, you could either have money or none. Not have money. Full of yeah, yeah, yeah. One or the other. You're on one end. One of the extreme spectrum. or the other. Yeah. Yeah. But then, um, so it took about two weeks for the police to figure it out, and the reason they figured it out is because the um, the, the the guy who plotted the murder. This woman's husband, her second husband, um, worked at a, a restaurant in a mall in Flint, Michigan, and he had actually tried to get his restaurant manager to do the hit, and he was so bumbling that he had taken the manager with him. At first, the manager agreed, and they'd gone to a nightclub where they were supposed to look for a hitman, <laughs> a nightclub. Yeah. Um, but there were those little things, that, things up on the wall with the little you know, phone numbers you can tear off. Hitman <laughs> 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 wanted. Hitman. Yeah. 1-800. So the manager knew a cop, and he told the cop out there, and at, after he heard about the murder, that cop called the cop in San Jose, so the San Jose cops understood that there was that connection. So, um, the, wasn't the uh, uh, the victim in a bitter custody battle with yes. uh, the woman, with his ex-wife? Yes. He wanted custody of his ex-wife? No. No, he wanted custody. <laughs> she wanted complete full custody of the children. Oh, oh. I, I wanna, it's, I, I'm still fascinated. By it. How old is the victim at the time of his death? 32. Oh, he was a young man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And how old was the murderer, the guy pulling the trigger on the... Uh, um, he was 20. Uh, Daisy. He 20, was... Andrew Granger. 
I'm just in, I, I envision this like sort of portly, partially bald businessman. No, no, but he's this is like a 32-year-old uh, guy with a yeah. sock full of cocaine. Yeah, he's popular. And he's in the middle of a divorce battle. Yeah, uh, with a custody issue. Sounds like some from a Lifetime movie. <laughs> I, it definitely. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of parts of it that are cinematic. That's for sure. Hey, you think this? Um, you think this Granger guy was stupid? Frank and I stupidly uh, wrote a, a little mini book about this love triangle in Los Gatos, and uh -huh. the killers left behind <laughs> the the uh, uh, Google Maps directions from their home to the crime scene. <laughs> <laughs> but well, but the, but the cops didn't solve it based. I mean, it, based it, on the that. cops found the Google map and wadded it up and threw it away. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, what's wow. this? What's this? Oh, it's directions to hear from the killer's house. Well, throw that out. Um, I yeah, worked for banking that's, for that's 25 years. Yeah, don't admit that. And. Uh, <laughs> Well, poor uh, we Andrew, had, when, uh, the, I when the cops arrested him, um, he took him to his bedroom and he showed them all the, he didn't ask for a lawyer, he just showed them all his little artifacts from the trip, you know, all the evidence, the map <laughs> with the, you know, with the townhouse circled, the address circled. The original and, Brendan um, Dassey. And then he agreed to reenact the crime on video, still without asking for a lawyer. And um, He should have asked at, for an agent. <laughs> at the end of the, at the end of the video... Um, they, the cop asked, do you have anything to add? And he did this imitation of Porky Pig. He said, yep, 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 that's all, folks. <laughs> wow. Yeah, did they do any mental tests on this guy to see if he was competent to uh, go on <laughs> no, television? But, yeah, that wasn't just, I mean, he clearly knew right from wrong, but he was just, Nuts. he was just bumbling. He was just addled. Addled-pated, just like Andre Thomas in Texas who plucked out one of his eyeballs prior to the trial and then when they found him guilty he plucked the other eyeball out and ate it oh right there God. in the courtroom and the judge said you nuts but you're not insane oh wow so so th this kid this person who's addled is G.I. Joe's this is the uh, five microdots of LSD guy yes who's his connection who, who's his how did he get connected to the murder? No, no, no. I don't know where he got his acid. One of his drug dealers. That I, I, I have to say, I don't know. Oh. I have to admit. Oh. Yeah. Um, Bill, what what draws you to your cases? I mean, like, what what brought you to the case in Santa, in Los Gatos? Oh, um, Deadly Sins. We did uh, a TV show. We decided oh, okay. that we. We'd uh, write something for the TV show. Yeah. Oh, oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, in fact, I'll show you what a sleazy business this true crime business really is. Now that okay. you're in it, in case you didn't know. Frank and I wrote a little tiny booklet, you know, uh, about Manling Williams and her deadly sins, where she uh -huh. murdered her husband by attacking him, was it 97 times with a samurai sword? And then sat down and wrote Sliced him a suicide him to death note. With a samurai sword, yeah. Then wrote, mad. then wrote it. Yeah. Well, she. Yeah. Yeah. The mad had her sense of mad. Yeah. But yeah. the thing is that she wrote him a suicide note. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as if he's going to attack himself with the uh, samurai sword. No one bought the suicide uh, well, idea. She. Uh, by the way, she also suffocated their two children. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, they, and the and the kids were were little kids, toddlers. 
Ball because she wanted to have an affair with somebody else who didn't want to be married. All she had to a do was get she, a divorce. Yeah, a guy she worked with at Caro's. Yeah. Or Marie Calendar's or something like that. Yeah, like it was a, a real sub, sub shop. He was and, a bus uh, boy there. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how, you, how you, you and your profession maintain your sanity. Well, we don't. Span all this time. <laughs> we have trust issues with our psychiatrists. With uh, people that do such horrible. Things. I'm not letting you off the hook on that one, am I? That, I'll tell you what. That particular case was was, was horrible because I was there at the crime scene. You know, right mm. right when it, Happened. right after it occurred. I mean, when she was still on the phone with 911 is when I pulled up. Wow. Got there before the cops. That was pretty awful. You're lucky she didn't take a samurai yeah, sword. Yeah, she you. was done. She was. I mean, she was already drinking a Red Bull. And, before she called the cops, she left for about an hour, yeah. right? And she went out, drove around, and then came home, discovered the crime scene. I'm using air quotes for those of you listening. <laughs> and um, uh, when she so, and then ran over to the neighbor's house, and of course the neighbors re, you know, go over and see blood everywhere. Call nine one one. I'm in the newsroom. We pick it up on the scanner. And I'm like, wow, this sounds like some way to spend my Friday. Yeah. So, so, you know, I run out and uh, got there before they did. Watched them pack her up. She was nuts. Wow. And, uh, you know, the poor, the thing is about stuff like this, and I imagine it's the case in, in, the, in the terrible stuff that happens resonates for a long mm. time afterwards. And the, the mom of the guy, Neil, his name was Neil, Neil Williams, uh, you know, she, su- she suffers every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, over this, he, she, and her you, grandkids. She, yeah. yeah, she'll post pictures of her grandkids every now and then. And, yeah, it makes me want to cry. It's just, it's mm-hmm. you know, it's just, and like I'm in these kids, like for report reporters suffer from a lot of PTSD. Yeah, you know, so like, so here you're covering this case, and some bitch tries to sue you for eleven million, and uh, I mean, I'm sure like that would be my reaction. Like, uh, uh, like if if you bitch. You know, uh, Does everything better to do? I, I, that would be. That'd be my reaction if I was the reporter or if I was the editor. It's like, you know what? What are you? You're up in here and you're involved in this some way. I know it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you probably knew it. And but I you was, know, I was very, very angry at her, and it took me a while to just own up to the fact that I'd I'd made a really awful mistake in what was going on there. You know why? Turns out it so, wasn't a mistake though. It, well, it, it, was it was a because, precognitive well, okay. truth. It was a, it was a mistake. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, truth is a defense in libel. Yes, in yeah. Libel truth case, is the ultimate defense in a libel case. Yet. Yeah, right. Yeah. Truth so, is the only de- is really the ultimate yeah. defense. Best so defense. Your sense of malice. Your reaction to to the incident was not to not to run and hide, but you put yourself in harm's way. Um, how, how did how did you decide that I need to go and risk my life to reestablish credibility? Oh, you mean to go to Nicaragua? Yeah. Um, I'd always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. That's okay. what I wanted to do Very since good. I was thirteen. So, and and that's what I that was my ambition when I I started making a lot of mistakes, and then that was the biggest one. You know, as I mentioned, so I knew I had to do something to to get back on track because I was in the running for the Mexico City job, but then I wasn't after the libel suit, obviously. So I went to Nicaragua, and it was amazing. I mean, it was a great story. It was the um, the Sandinista government, the leftist government had just taken over from a dictator. 
and it was a moment of great idealism that has since faded, unfortunately. Um, it, it was just it was just really fascinating. I was I was really happy to go there, and um, as a side benefit, I met my future husband there. So that worked out well. It's a good thing you went; otherwise, he'd still be sitting there waiting for you. That's exactly right. Uh, You're a romantic, bro. No, I am. I'm a romantic at heart. (laughs) uh, Did you ever fear for your life during this period of time? Not in Nicaragua. That felt pretty safe. But then later I covered um, El Salvador during the Civil War. Oh. That that always, that felt a lot. I bet you were a little more worried then, weren't you? Yeah. You and James Woods. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, James Woods. Yeah, he did a movie about it. It didn't, yeah. didn't look quite I think he, he had to be that worried. Yeah. I was thinking, I was but, thinking that same year, I think of the Rolling Stones, that song they did, Undercover, which yeah. was all kind of about that whole... Uh, uh, you could have been like... Scene a, what's in his Nicaragua name? and El Salvador. What's his name? The guy in Kill the Messenger? Mm. Uh, Dark, Al- Dark, uh, Dark Alliance? Oh. oh, yeah. Gary Webb, he was from the yeah. San Jose yeah. Martinez. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you work he with him? He committed suicide, right? Yeah. I mean... But, right, um, He's a conspiracy next week guy. I'm going to be speaking yeah. with um, another journalist who was who wrote a book after being kidnapped by Somali pirates. So I kind of feel like being sued by this woman was not quite equivalent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see how we both, you know, reach common ground if there. If you're kidnapped by Somali pirates, do you wind up talking like one? Margh! <laughs> <laughs> Get a parrot! <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Which way to the gold? So. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go out and walk my parapet. So, so you didn't. So, you, <laughs> okay, Mel. So, when the murder happened, you were a reporter, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, but you didn't cover the actual homicide. No, I didn't. That was a police reporter, and then, and that was in 1980, and I came to the paper like a year later, and so the trial was just getting underway when I was assigned to the court beat. I get it. Okay. Oh, so and as a rookie reporter, they put you on the court beat. Yeah, I'd already done. It wasn't my first assignment. I'd already done general assignment, but I moved. I moved on to that pretty quickly because um, I'd already had some reporting experience as a freelancer. Hmm. Well, maybe they figured there wasn't going to be much happening down at the courthouse. Ah, ha, ha, ha. They'll just understand. be down there covering divorces and weddings and who's out of town. So I completely disagree <laughs> no, with, great, with it. No, it was an amazing beat. I mean, those were really, you know, in a, in a kind of a creepy way, it was fun. I mean, it's, you know, like Frank says, you always, you feel sad. You feel really sad for people and, and you see horrific things. But at the same time, you get this glimpse into human nature that, that I guess is, you know, why a lot of people read true crime. Yeah, I think a lot of people who read true crime don't realize how corrupt the, the system is because a mm. lot of true crime writers don't tell you that. Mm. <laughs> Which system? The, the so-called justice, justice system. Oh, the ju- yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, just making sure we're talking about that. Yeah. Well, I, I see, okay, so I lived in San Jose, I, full disclosure here, I lived in San Jose at that time. Do you two, you two ever go out together? Uh, no. She's from Hillsborough. That's that's that's, that's too not, uppity for you. <laughs> well, I mean, you know about Hillsborough if you lived in San Jose. Yes, right? I know about Hillsborough. I believe that's where the Hearst family is from. Uh-huh. Really? Yeah. Yep. So this this not it's not like just the Tony oh, suburb. It's, like, it's uh, the extremely Tony Xanadu. <laughs> yeah, and it's more of a suburb of San Francisco really than it is of San Jose. But uh, Frank, what were you doing in San Jose? 
uh, growing up. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> in, uh, in 19, I, I was I, at that time. I was at uh, I was actually in college at UCSD. Um, oh. But I I went to high school in San Jose. Went to elementary school in San Jose. Uh-huh. Uh, went to junior high. And, and uh, where did you work on newspapers? Uh, in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Ah. Oh. Pasadena Star News, a night reader paper. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, but he's a true journalist, not one of these make-believe kind. <laughs> the LA Daily News up until 2015. They're becoming more rare. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's no one left. I, sometimes you know you. Well, I mean, I'm not gonna like the San. Well, the San Jose Mercury News is now part of the chain of newspapers that I was the ME for, and mm. the guy that was like my, you know, my bro, my, the other ME, right? He's now the executive editor of just about every paper in Northern California except the Examiner and the Chronicle in San mm. Francisco. But, you know, the Mercury, the Oakland Tribune, the name it, except for the LA Times. kind of like uh, the radio station conglomerates where they're all... <laughs> yeah, and it's just one guy that's the executive editor, and each of these papers that used to have staffs, I don't know what the Mercury staff was like, but I, I assume uh, that it was large. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel very grateful that I got to live through, you know, really some of the heyday of, of journalism. I mean, when newspapers really had a lot of money and they were very ambitious. And had influence. I remember yeah. the strategy. had influence. Still have, the right. New York Times still has influence. Yeah. Right. The Post, maybe. Yeah. Oh, sure. From time to time, the Washington But Post. what the strategy was, which I thought was really interesting, is you'd have very conservative owners who would hire very liberal reporters. Right, right. That was the entire strategy, which is very smart. Very smart. Yeah, keep the, your keep your friends. Hold your enemies closer. Yeah, right. And they had very liberal reporters, and they would be able to tone down the liberality of the reporters mm-hmm. because they were very conservative owners. Lived through it. And uh, it made for a nice balance. During the only riots, it was, yeah. it was out covering the riots, and you noticed that there was a lot of fresh guns. <laughs> and they asked the guy, hey, where'd you get there? And, ah, yeah, we just went down to Turner's Outdoorsman, and they just said they were selling. So, you know, oh going God. to Turner's Outdoorsman, and the guy's, yeah, he's selling handguns and rifles right over the counter. And at that, that time, I think there was a, it was either a 24-hour or a 72-hour waiting period. He didn't yeah. believe in that. I got a great story, right? And uh, put it in the paper, of course. Who's calling the next day? Big, <laughs> paper's biggest advertiser, Turner's Outdoorsman. <laughs> he said, I got to sue her for $11 million. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you were able to put the story. They, nobody yeah, stopped you from writing yeah, it. I didn't, have, I didn't, yeah, or, yeah, I didn't have to write. I mean, yeah, it actually happened. But, you know, the, but the point, I guess, was is that the, you know, the publishers so the next day, I was assigned to you know, ride in a car with a photographer far away from the gun store. Well. <laughs> Don't even go down that block. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Put down that act, Eugene. <laughs> I never, I never felt any of that, but that might have just been coincidental. Who knows? No, I mean, it's just, I think it pro- the, I think the Night Ritter papers were really great papers, and um, they had a good reputation for a while. Yeah. It was a great, great place to work. Yeah. Yes, and Sweet. I used to and I used to deliver the mercury. That was that was. Oh. <laughs> uh, on your little bicycle, throw it I, right through people's windows. Yeah, we well no, we put it had to put it on the on the porch or else they'd get angry. They'd yeah, get well, very angry. I, I used to help my buddy deliver the Walla Walla Union Bulletin. Hey, see there, you go. <laughs> and we'd throw well, it through their windows. <laughs> The mercury you know. one sent me to Washington to when I was just 
just starting out. I was still, you know, on the court beat um, the early days. There was a guy who got, he was convicted of murder and then not guilty by reason of insanity, spent years in a mental hospital. And then he got out, bought a rifle, and <laughs> he'd already written threatening letters to the president. And then he was able to take that rifle on buses, go to Washington, and he got really close to it. He was arrested in the Treasury Building, I guess. Um, so they, they liked the story so much because he was from San Jose. <laughs> they sent me out hey, to cover, boys. You know, retrace his journey. Those were the those were the golden days. That's an inspirational story. Yeah, I mean, but you don't. But the thing is, like, we don't read stories like that anymore. You know, the stuff we read now is largely garbage. Yeah. And you know, and celebrity the same misinformation. Celebrity driven. You know, twenty five tweets uh, to you know make the story more lively. It's you know. It's like a Wall Street Journal just have these incredible feature stories on the front page about the magic finger things in the beds and the motel rooms. The history, <laughs> honestly, the history of those and, and the guy who went around and picked up all the quarters oh, yeah. out of the out of the motel. I bet bed. he saw some stuff. Oh, I bet he did. Yeah, he's a lot of quarters. <laughs> <laughs> they gave people a lot of time to to just do good stuff, so it was it was nice, um, and I was really grateful that I was able to, you know, pick myself up and end up as a foreign correspondent for some years. See, when you look back on your life and you say, <laughs> "Gee, I hope Mark C.G. Boyer has a question." He does. <laughs> so, so you had a great deal of trouble putting the putting this. Story together. I like how he stays on track. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing, isn't in it? A, in a no ADD there. <laughs> Did you find when you when you finally finished that it was cathartic? Oh, it was. Yes, it really was. I think only at this point in my life could I actually. I mean, it was such a humiliating mistake at the time, <laughs> and I felt, you can't let go of that. The guilt's driving her crazy. Well, I mean, I get, but you gotta get, you gotta get it, man. I mean, that I totally get where you're coming from. Oh yeah, and, thank you. And and uh, yeah, I I don't I would be hard to go to work, and you know. <laughs> oh yeah, you're well, so humiliated by. Away to danger, I mean, yeah. I think that I I just I really like your choice is like just a great way to deal with it. I, thank you. No, it was it was hard because I was I was kind of snooty when I was young. I thought I was you know pretty pretty special. I'd gone to Stanford and I'd reported overseas already, and then I got this you know temporary job that led to a full time job at the Mercury, and I was promoted very quickly. So I didn't have a lot of friends among other reporters. And so they they were kind of a few of them I think were probably delighted to see to see you suffer. <laughs> what happened? But it was a it was a good humbling experience, and it it really pushed me to, you know, part of what I write about in the book is that it it pushed me to do some to, to be more accountable than a lot of twenty year olds have to be. Um, so that was a good thing. You know, the interesting reminds me of a book that you would really enjoy called Secret Sex Lives by Susie Spencer. Oh, we had her. Secret Next Lives? Super, Secret Sex Lives, A oh Year on the <laughs> Edge of America's Sexual Frontier. She was going to do this book that was a research on, you know, America's sexual whatevers, and the editor said, no, make it about you doing the book. Huh. And Wait, that, didn't they turn that into an HBO special? Oh, they could. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, because it's, <laughs> it it's the same thing. She's dealing with her issues. Huh. And by the time you get to the last chapter of the book, 
She's writing the last chapter, and she keeps getting up and walking away from the word processor and pacing around the room and sitting back down. You can see it. You can feel it while you're reading it. She's saying it. Oh, I want to find other reasons. See, I, I feel the like I read. I'm, I feel like I, when I read your journey to getting this book written and published, like there's hope for the people that you know have a story that they want to tell oh, yeah. and you know are constantly processing the information and trying to figure out how all the pieces fit together and then you know having that that moment where you go ah oh, i got it i know what the first chapter is going to say and, right, and right. you know i mean that i think that that's really very inspiring and what led you to steve jackson and wellbrew press I'm I'm really grateful. I have a, a great community of, of writers, friends who are writers, and I alienated a lot of them by, <laughs> by <laughs> coming on my show. This, but <laughs> there were, yeah, there yeah, were yeah. several who stuck with me um, and <laughs> gave me a lot of support. So that's how I managed, I think, yeah. to finish it. Yeah. Hey, you're reading one of my books. I don't know if you finished it yet or not, or if you threw it across the room. Well, no, I'm nearly at the end. Nearly at the end. Oh, it's got a good ending. You'll like the ending. Yeah. yeah. Which book is that? Headlock. Oh, Headlock. Headlock, Headlock. Yes. The, the, one of my best reviewed and least selling books. <laughs> Isn't that how it happens? That's yeah. Too bad. Yeah. Well, I think I, I wrote a book where I, I'm I the hero. Poor, I have a poorly reviewed and poorly selling book. <laughs> really? Well, that's a good combination. At least you it have matches. a really well reviewed and really well selling book that you two wrote. Yes, we do. Yeah, well, a couple of them. Betrayal and Blue. Betrayal and Blue is and Case for Murder. Yeah. Betrayal yeah. and Blue is a great book. It really uh -huh. is a great book. I read it myself, and I said, these guys are good. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I usually have to wait about 20 years before I can read one yeah, of my true I crime hate, books. I just hate reading. I hate reading. Because if I read a paragraph that I wrote 20 years ago and I don't like it, I'm just yeah. bummed out all day long. But Aww. if I find one that I really like, I go, God, this guy's good. I wish I could write one. <laughs> well, how about you, Catherine? Do you, do you, have you, read, do you, do you read your books? Um. I can read books after about 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about how long it takes. Because I always just think of where I was when I wrote that sentence. <laughs> right, right. I always think of, I always think of where was I when where I wrote Where was I? I <laughs> well, there were a lot of paisleys on the wallpaper. Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> well, this is a, not an uncommon phenomenon. Anyone who writes whatever the genre me, it's software. You guys are true crime. So, wait, I want to... Investigative reporting. You know, you look at something you did some time ago, and you go, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> what was I thinking? Yeah. I, just have, I just realized I have a question about this book's scenario. Yeah. Okay, so we have 32-year-old guy, custody case, cocaine in a sock or something in the house. Yeah. Dude with a rifle that comes from Flint, Michigan to kill him. A an investigation that lasts two weeks and is only cracked by a phone call from cop to cop, and then a homicide trial where the reporter gets dinged for writing something that wasn't true but was true. And these guys never ratted her out? Well, that's the really, that's the really interesting thing. Okay, so as long as I'm talking about <laughs> the whole plot... <laughs> yes, yeah, um, so, well, I, I, but I think anybody listening to the show right now is going to buy a copy of this book. And by the way, oh, you you, think? You, you, yeah, <laughs> I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, we should well, tell them the name of it, though. What's the name of the book? Mothers and Murderers. Thank you. Mothers and Murderers. It's Wild yeah. Blue Press. You can get it on Amazon. Yes. You can order direct from Wild Blue if you want. Yep. Okay. Uh, and good. maybe all finer bookstores and. Yeah, I don't know. 
I always get my wild blue stuff online. You can get it for your Kindle okay. too. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. By the way, so, uh, well, anyway, so if you don't want to answer the question, don't. But I hope you do. <laughs> <laughs> because it's you asking, um, I'm happy to. <laughs> I mean, because there's so many other twists and turns. I mean, you can't. I couldn't possibly explain every surprise in the book. Of course. Um, but I'll just say that Judy, while her husband was on trial for murder. Um, had an affair with his attorney, oh. and it, the guy was going to be so loyal uh, to her. It was almost like body heat, you know. Uh, he was, I mean, oh, no yeah. third-party culpability in this one. Oh. Yeah, but but when he found out about that, about the the affair with the lawyer, he decided that he was going to spill the beans. Yeah, yeah, a tart with a tort. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is a great story. Mothers and Murderers. Mothers and Murderers. Wild Blue Press. Well, buy several copies today. Buy it. When Read I, it. Believe when I it. Eat the next box of M&M's Halloween. Yeah, she won the Pulitzer Prize named after Roxanne Pulitzer. Remember oh, her? I forgot her to even ask her about that. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Oh, my gosh. Okay, bye. Bye, bye. Hey, what's next? Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence, live with the Lighting Up Loud at AllerRadioLive.com. Great. Great work. Yes, of course. Barbarian. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, live from a gleaming, streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio in beautiful Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. The following program is produced by the beautiful, life and lovely and lady Lori Dowdy Jr. on the Outlaw Radio Network. And as I always say, who wouldn't want to be produced by Leggy Lori <laughs> Everyone wants to be produced by the long life, lovely Leggy Lori Downey Jr. I am the legendary Burl Bear. The program is true crime uncensored, setting the standard for a beleaguered and tempest tossed broadcast industry. Joining me, fact checker Mark Boyer. And it is hot today. Hot today. You can bring the music down, life and lovely Lori Downey Jr. And joining us today, one of my favorite guests, the beautiful and talented <laughs> Vito Colucci Jr. Burrow, I'm leaving if you ask him what he's wearing. Vito! Vito! Yes, yes, sir. How are you, bro? My pleasure to be here. Yeah, what are you wearing? <laughs> what am I wearing? Like they say in the commercial, uh, uh, khakis. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm glad those days are over, bro. I'll tell you, we've had Vito on the show before, and I've met Vito in person at the uh, Mob Fest. My sincere sympathies to you, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I met uh, met Vito in, in Las Vegas, Nevada. We had uh, this thing, Mob Fest, where you had... I thought this was really amazing, Vito, because... show you how times change. You had, in addition to Henry Hill, you had Andrew DiDonato, you had uh, Frank Collado, you had all... Denny the, Griffith. Denny, Denny Griffith. Griffith. You had all these gangsters... <laughs> And you had you, who wore a wire to bust these guys. I know. Is that amazing? All, the, all that time back then, Burl, that I wore wire infiltrating two crime families, uh, getting people indicted, like the, not that I did, Andrew, but, but, you know, sort of the same line, like Andrew and the different people you've mentioned here to now share a podium with them all is really amazing. I know you guys are all sort of, hey, remember when I tried to arrest you? Yeah, yeah, remember that? We were rolling down the hill together and, you know, I was yeah, you choking a, you, you and you were spitting out the my... drugs. 
it's, uh, it's the change in the culture and the change in the definition of celebrity. Yeah, you know, and, and there's good and bad in that, believe me. I mean, you know, the uh, people are fascinated fascinated about organized crime. When Henry Hill was alive, I appeared with him. I emceed many places that we spoke. And, you know, Henry's a good guy now. I don't have, I didn't have any problem with Henry. Well, we got along Henry's well. Henry's a dead guy now. Yes, well, yeah, I know. Yeah, better. now he is. But I used to watch the people as they would come up to the head table to talk to him. And they were enthralled. You know, and it's just kind of like, wow, I saw this movie, and that's the real guy. Even though I gotta tell you a quick funny story, bro. I ran a big dinner back in Connecticut. Um, it wound up being very successful. Big mob night where uh, Henry was going to be the uh, featured speaker and the whole bit. And, uh, you know, I was booking it for this classy Italian restaurant. I was, you know, taking the call-ins. And one day a lady called and she said, yeah, I'd like to book for four for the dinner. And I'm so excited about it. In fact, I'm surprising, I'm surprising my husband, blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's going to be so great to to finally see Ray Liotta. <laughs> so I said I said, "Oh, well, no, ma'am. You saw the flyers, right?" She said, "Yeah, yeah. Ray Ray Liotta's not going to be there. Henry Hill." Yeah, I know. I know. Ray yeah, you know, I know what you're talking about. Ray Liotta, you know, Henry Hill, you know. I said <laughs> she actually believed that Ray Liotta was Henry Hill. I said, he's not going to be there. I said, the real Henry Hill is, yes, that's, and she kept going on about it. Yes, 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 I know Ray. They can't she's tell like, the difference. She's like, what, what's his name? Uh, what's, what's, what was the head guy from Star Trek? Uh, uh, William a, Shatner. Yeah, like he said one time on a, on, a, on a Jay Leno show, he went to one of the big conferences, you know, and, and he said he'd never go again because people were coming up to him saying, why in that fourth episode, remember when the guy was, a, why yeah. did you do that? And he said, I would written. look at them first, uh -huh. and I'd say, the the director and the the writer told me to do that. Yeah, but you no, you should. Why you should have? Why you didn't know, you beam up the other direction? They actually thought it was all real. real. There was a, there's a there was a really cute scene in the movie Galaxy Quest with uh, Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver. And toward the end, where they're trying to to keep the spaceship from exploding, and they have to crawl through all the bizarre places in the spaceship, and then there's this one spot where there's this big giant pieces of metal squishing and splashing against each other, and then she says, "There's no point." Sigourney says, "Why is there this there are these crunchy, squishy, smashy things in the middle of this callway?" And Alan says, "That's the way they wrote it." And Sigourney says, "That writer should die." Oh, that's funny. So they, they made fun of the non sequiturs within the. Yeah. I, have, I have seen soap opera actors on television, and someone in the audience will stand up all agitated and go, Your husband is having an affair. She goes, I, I know. I'm, I'm on the show. I've read the script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. trying to warn him. It's just really strange the, 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 the mesh between rea fantasy and reality with these people. They just as don't... long as they don't get to the point, Burrow, we're in. Um, uh, the James Conn movie, uh, the, 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 one of the fans kidnaps him, breaks his legs, the whole bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that was, uh, that was Stephen King, Misery. 
Yeah. Oh, a yeah. misery, right. Okay. Oh, yeah. This when someone tells me, Burl, I'm your number one fan. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I know, really especially scared. the way she said that. Oh, she yeah. Said, I'm your Burl. Number, number one, one fan. fan. Yeah. Oh, Burl. Oh, boy. Burl. Oh, boy. That tits. Uh, that, Burl, yeah. I'm, I'm your number one chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vito, I gotta, uh, does it seem strange to you? And you've got, we want to mention, of course, you got this brand new book out about your, your days back in, you know, when I, when I think of Connecticut, I do not think of organized crime. I think, I mean, I've been to Connecticut, and uh, I even got an award from the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. <laughs> oh, uh, really? Okay. Uh, I always think of it. How many payoffs did that take? It took a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when we went to the guy who started his house in Connecticut. He's really a nice guy. Fell into a small spot, that guy. But uh, the point being is you don't think of Stanford, Connecticut as being like a hotbed of corruption, but it was, uh, it sure as hell was. Uh, it was called for many years, for a period of 20 years, the mo most corrupt or at least one of the most corrupt cities in the whole United States. What the listeners need to understand, uh, Stanford, Connecticut is 40 minutes from New York City. Okay, it's basically on the border of Connecticut and New York. And um, it, it, it is in what's called Fairfield County, which... Um, started many years ago to now, it is the most expensive, rich county in the entire country. Wow. Is this where, is this where Letterman lives? Right, yeah. You have all the stars living in what's called Greenwich, Connecticut, which is the richest city. Forget, I mean, you know, uh, probably on par with Beverly Hills or something of that nature. In the country, all the New York athletes, from whether the, the Rangers, the Knicks, the Mets, the Yankees, whatever, they all live in Greenwich because nobody will bother them as they walk down the, the main roads. And it's very, but back in my time, it was a hotbed because it was, it, it was a, a rich city that was just starting to bring in all the headquarters for the uh, Fortune 500 companies, Xerox, many, many other words, GE. Mm. And, uh, and that started, you know, where people wanted the bids, they wanted to get the contracts, you know, for the building. I mean, we're talking millions and millions and millions of so dollars. So anytime you got that much money, you're going to have corruption. Right. Oh, yeah. And that's just a small part of it. See, uh, my book talks about everything. The p police department, my own bosses. I was on the narcotics squad. My own bosses that were running the whole narcotics empire, not just in one town, but all through a, an entire county. And my uh, sergeant, uh, who was, uh, see, my lieutenant was running the organized crime part. Two crime families that he, he was working for the crime families, and he was making a tremendous amount of money on that. Why didn't, you, why didn't you tap into that, Vito? What do you mean, do the same? <laughs> yeah, did you have ethics, <laughs> no. ethics or something? <laughs> No, I mean, thank God. And, then, and meanwhile, my sergeant, uh, the, uh, my black sergeant, Duke Morris, uh, that he was running all the drugs. You had to deal with him if you wanted to be involved in drugs. I, I often tell people, I say to them um, when they ask about this fellow, Duke Morris, tough as can be, tough, tough guy. When, when he died, he was looked at for seven murders, uh, things of that nature. But I often say to them, hey, you guys see the movie Training Day with Denzel Washington? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I say, <laughs> he plays a guy. Guy named Alonzo in that movie. I said Alonzo had nothing on Duke Morris, or oh at least God. he's on. He's, at least he's on par with him. I, and I, it, that's just how it was. I mean, it was it was tens of thousands of dollars going into people's pockets back then. 
And, uh, well, you, know, you know what this, this sounds like? It sounds like Tacoma, Washington back in the day when the chief really? of police was running all the vice in the town and they mm -hmm. had a vice squad. And <laughs> the vice squad is busting the chief of police's places. <laughs> well, yeah, well, see, yeah, that's that, that's what could have happened here. But see, our, our lieutenant who ran, again, it was called Special Services Squad, which entailed, you know, from prostitution to drugs to gambling and everything else, not only in Stanford, but the whole county. It was a, called a regional squad, a very, very uh, popular squad. It was something that was very prestigious to get on, you know, when, when you didn't realize what was going on behind the scenes with your bosses, you know. But and, anyway. I mean, he would he would orchestrate like when we'd say, uh, Lieutenant, we wanted to uh, do a search warrant tonight. We got information. We had a wiretap with the state police. We want to hit uh, Ricky and Stanley Smith's house tonight. We know they got a huge shipment in. It's Friday night. They're all set for the weekend and into next week. Big, big shipment. Okay, so he would play it cool. He'd say, okay, you want to hit his house tonight? Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, go wake up one of the judges. What, what time you want to hit it? Well, one or two in the morning. Okay. Get go to one of the judges' house, get the warrant signed, and blah blah blah. The typical typical yeah. procedure that you do, you know. And but meanwhile, we didn't know he was crooked because uh, after this happened four or five times, the people uh, almost opening the door, letting us in. <laughs> you know, hey, come on in, guys. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it got to be ridiculous until we arrested a low-level drug dealer. We're on our way to the headquarters to book him. He said, if I give you something gigantic, will you at least go to the prosecutor for me and try to get this taken care of? Because uh, this time I would have to go to jail like three or four years. I said, well, Arville, I'm all ears. It better be something good. And he says, your bosses are running the whole drug and gambling empire all through the county. And <laughs> That's a nice right then, at that same time, me and my partner looked at each other. And right away we knew why, all those search warrants and everything else. I mean, we were making a ton of arrests, but we were making a ton of arrests on low-level people or on people that weren't connected yeah. to them, things of that nature. Mark so, has a uh, question for you. Um, just uh, curious, how many, uh, around how many people were on this, this squad, were in the squad? Okay, we, um, we so had a at that... Yeah, we had at that time, I think, around nine or ten people that okay. were on the squad. That's what I was expecting. <clears throat> yeah. Something and, and, and we had a, a, a lieutenant, which was Larry Hogan, totally corrupt, and the sergeant right under him, Duke Morris, totally corrupt. Everybody else on the squad really was honest. They were just doing their work. We were making arrests every day. That's, that's, the, that's where my question takes me to. Yeah. You are, you're at the year in top... You're on top of this squad, and you're running the illegal activities. Not right. him, personally. No, no, the, the people yeah. above him. Yeah. Right. right. Your superiors. Why on earth would they, would they have on their squad honest cop? That makes absolutely no sense to me. Well, they, they had, well, because you needed several people to make narcotics arrest. But you, you can, have you can to be have a that. corrupt cop and still do that. Uh, yeah, but they're the bosses. They don't go out and do the down and dirty stuff like that but, anymore. But, but, you, but you, could, you could, in effect, stack the deck so that the people on your squad, a.k.a. Denzel right. Washington and his squad, everyone right. on the squad was corrupt, except right. Ethan Hawkett as, as the new 
I think it was Ethan Hawke, who was the new uh, officer. Yes, Ethan Hawke, right, right, right. yep. So wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been safer and easier to stack the deck uh, with it, the... It, it so could have been. you don't have the, the opportunity for someone to go, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, I, that's that's a very good question. I can see why Burl pays you what he does. Uh, but getting to the getting to the uh, <laughs> getting he pays to the me question with though, that would be that would be a logical way to do it. The only problem with that is you get more and more people involved that know exactly what you're doing. You see, that's not good. You get a squad of five or six guys. You got to worry if I'm paying them enough or things of that nature. They can blackmail me. And not only that, what what happens? One of the cops gets in trouble for something, right? He wants to save himself, so he does the same thing. He says, hey, look, give me immunity, and I'll give you something real big. If you think what I'm going to give you is big, I want immunity. And, I mean, of course, who's not going to want the head of a squad all through the county and the sergeant of a squad all through the county and uh, let, the, let one lower guy possibly go with a probation to nab everybody else. But that's a, that was a very good point. Very good point. Um, so uh, the other question I wanted to ask is um, why did you wait so long to tell the story? Oh, well, it was, you know, I be, I'm a firm believer in everything happens. Uh, timing is everything. Okay? I mean, this went all through the 70s. My, my book here, Rogue Town, ends approximately in 82, 83, uh, when my, my boss, who was just indicted for murder, uh, dies of brain cancer before he goes to trial. And that kind of ended the whole thing. And, uh, but, you know, I really, my life was pretty messed up through that whole time, too. I mean, I had been in a shootout. Uh, you know, I was awarded the Combat Cross, one of the highest awards you can get. But my life was all screwed up. I mean, back then, uh, you didn't have people that would help you uh, after a, a massive shootout where you and your partner and one of your bosses are, are involved in it, and over 40 shots were fired. And it was kind of like that was a Friday night. Okay, go go home, come back in Monday. <laughs> not like to, not like today, where oh, hey, you guys, you, you guys are right. Oh, hold on. Yeah, are you all right? You there? I'm here. Oh, is a little post-traumatic stress problem there, Vito? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I had to go to a psychologist several years after that to uh, to uh, help me with it. Uh, Elaine Bracco? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. You should be so lucky. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> now, all this time that you were wearing a wire, you could have been... Guys, all sorts of horrible stuff could have happened to you. Oh, it, it, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, I was going through at that time marriage problems. Uh, we had money problems. Uh, you know, my life was really in chaos. I mean, here they're pinning a medal on you, and uh, you're, you're looking like a hero to a certain group of individuals, and, and yet your whole life is crum crumbling around I'm you. Donnie yeah, yeah, you're worried each day who's going to touch your wire and who's going to, uh, you know, whatever it may be, you know, who, who would get information on you and you'd be lured someplace or whatever. Uh, and it was crazy. Now, you know, the thing to get into is the fella that won the Pulitzer for writing all these stories. Yeah, well, this is fascinating. This is a fascinating story. I'm very, I'm very glad you want to get into this because we find, find this fabulous. Well, here a, a guy comes into town, a brand-new cub reporter by the name of Anthony Dolan. Same exact age as me. We're, we're, we're like three or four months apart in age. So he comes in as a new young reporter, and, uh, you know, just through nosing around and learning the town and everything like that, he finds out 
about something that's going on in one of the other city departments, you know, be it public works or housing or zoning or whatever it may be. So he finds out about it and he goes with the story. And, you know, the, the people t- uh, know what's going on. They're, they're funneling stuff to him. They're dropping dimes and phones for him. And he, he starts with one city story about how uh, the parks commissioner, the new parks commissioner that was appointed, the, the specs said that you had to have a, a degree from college with emphasis on, uh, uh, what is it called, arboriculture, or all those kind of things. This guy, this, this, this guy dropped out of high school. Yeah. So, but he was a crony of the powers to be, and he got the job. So that started the ball rolling, because what happened then, once he printed that first story, then now everybody, all the honest people working at City Hall, the honest cops, the honest firemen, started dropping a dime. They said, hey, you know, Dolan, do, do yourself a favor, man. Look into the fire department. Look There's an arson. Yeah arson ring going on over here and blah 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 so he wound up writing between 75 and 80 stories okay which uh, you know the police chief uh, after his first story came out the, the police chief uh, retired uh, you know, <laughs> I, he did, I he, want to spend more time with my family <laughs> well, yeah, right. he did the typical <laughs> you said it right there he did the typical thing uh, we're going to a break yeah we're going to a break we'll be right back in 60 seconds with Vito Colucci Jr. author of the great new book Rogue Town we'll be right back Crime time on the uh, Very interesting. yes Sunday nights 
at uh, 8 p.m. Pacific, 11 p.m. Eastern. I hear that he is going to have a special guest on this. Summer. Yes, he is me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 is that nepotism going? Oh, sorry. That's no, not nepotism. That no, no, giving uh, you know stuff to your family gives nepotism a bad name. Uh, <laughs> yeah, correct, it does. Hey, um, so, so, yes, um, yes, yes. Well, yeah. as I was listening to your um, your um, commercials there and everything else, I you know I heard the word digital download, and it's amazing how the years go by. I'm in my 60s now. So all these terms are just amazing to hear now. I mean, you know, uh, I'm, I'm doing pretty good on the computer, but th- if this was several years ago, I, if I heard the term digital download, I would think it's some kind of an old person uh, bowel movement or <laughs> yes. something of that well, Some people think that about my books. <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you read the reviews, I get I get trolls, too. This is one, <laughs> one thing in the in the true crime uh, field, that, that uh, a phenomenon that, I, that you've probably experienced yourself. It's what we call trolls. And what trolls do is they go on and they they've never even read the book. They don't care. They just right. they just want to be asshats, as we say in the trade. And so they uh, they usually they usually begin with. I read a lot of true crime, and this is the first review I've ever written, but this book is so horrible, I just had to write a review. And then you look mm. to see what other reviews they've written, and maybe it's three, and they all begin the same way. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's too bad. That's, that's, that's really they, too they, bad. Usually these people have an axe to grind, and I would imagine yeah. in your particular situation where you're calling out people who are corrupt... There have got to be people sitting there in Stanford, Connecticut, or in that county, who are going, I'm going to say bad things about Vito. Yeah, I had one one person specifically, which was funny, when we were putting the book together at the end, um, I, I, I brought up the guy's name to Anthony Dolan. I said, Anthony, who was this guy here back in that day? I said, you know, he uh, it was kind of fringe, fringe player. And Dolan said, yeah, you know, there really nobody could really get anything on him. He was kind of like a friend of all these people type of thing. So I, I left him out of the book, you know, and all of a sudden <laughs> I get a review. And you know, horrible review. And uh, you know, he's saying he's saying on there, uh, Vito has some imagination. Oh, what an imagination! And what made me laugh is that it, it would have been much better for him to just say, "I don't like the book. I don't like the writing. I don't like that," which would have been fine. But to say that when everything in my true crime book is based on facts, facts I yeah. got the newspaper articles, I got the pictures, I got <laughs> every <laughs> single thing. Right. So I mean, like, where is he coming? with that. That was so far-fetched. Uh, no, you know? there's, there's one I got where it says, the guy spends the entire book talking about ballistics. Well, in that particular book, the murder weapon was a knife. There's no ballistics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you guys were reviewing the wrong book. That's all I know. I know. But uh, you got, you got to, that's something you got to deal with in the, in the true crime field that you don't usually deal with in other aspects of, of genres of literature. That's that, right. Uh, some people have an axe to grind. Either they're related to the to the bad guys or related to the good guys. <laughs> that's right. And you just have to deal with that. But I'll tell you, I'll give you one piece of advice that that the great Michael Hamilton, who's the chief executive editor at Kensington Publishing Company, told me. She said, "Burl, don't don't read the reviews on Amazon." And I said, why is that? She says, because though you'll get trolls. Uh, she says, the only review that matters is the one from the publisher saying, we want you to write more books. Oh, right, right. Wow. <laughs> That's the only review that matters. And well, that's so, great. Yeah, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about this Anthony Dolan fellow. Oh, please do. So, so he was uh, he had written uh, uh, some seventy to eighty articles at this point. Yeah, I mean he he writes these articles over for you know several years, uh, and you know the whole town now is in an uproar. First of all, the powers to be. 
And again, I mean, you look at Stanford, Connecticut, it's a, it's the one town alone is just a, a town of about back then 130,000 people, but very influential city. Like I said, very close to New York, very big mob figures, you know, in the area there and the whole bit. So it was it was prime territory for organized crime. So eventually Dolan got to the police department and, you know, this and that, uh, wrote about what's going on. You know, a lieutenant is, is making $16,000 a month or, what, or whatever's going on. So, you know, what happened with this fella? After I'll fast forward ahead a little bit to 1980, 81, um, Ronald Reagan is running for president the first term. Anthony Anthony Dolan uh, in 1978, I believe, he wins the Pulitzer for his writing, for writing all these stories, 75 stories, 80 stories, for investigative reporting. The guy wins a Pulitzer for this stuff. He continues to stay at the local newspaper for a little while. His phone rings. It's Reagan and his staff calling. Hi, we'd like to have you come to Washington. We'd love to meet you. I want to talk to you about uh, possibly uh, being uh, looking for a chief speechwriter for us. Uh, for He was running for the first term. So Dolan goes. He gets hired as his chief speechwriter, goes on to eight years uh, of working with him. He, he, he's the one that coined, uh, turned on that wall, Mr. Gorbachev, yeah, uh, evil, em- wall, evil, yeah. Yeah, evil Empire, all that stuff. Those were all, you know, uh, related to him. So now he's, he's working in, in the White House, so to speak. And in 1984, what happens is he writes... Meanwhile, Reagan is having one-on-one meetings with him. Tell me about Stanford, Connecticut. Tell me about organized crime. Man, you want a Pulitzer, so you tell me about organized crime and how it works. And so what happens in 1984, Anthony Dolan presents a five-point program to uh, President Reagan with all his top people in his office that day, a young Rudy Giuliani, all of the Kenneth Starr, all these people. So he presents this five-point program for a crackdown on organized crime that ranged from many, many more federal agents and prosecutors to a presidential commission on organized crime. As soon as Reagan hears it, they, they speak for a while. Everybody was telling Anthony Dolan before the meeting, now, nah, you know, the boss ain't going to cover it, man. We present all these things, and there's no money, and there's no money, no money. And uh, they were shocked when Dolan played a, a audio tape of a prosecutor making a deal with uh, very high-ranking organized crime members for the amount of money he was going to get. And, and like it says in the foreword of the book, which Anthony Dolan wrote, he said he looked at Reagan, his face was all red, and you could see he was furious. He said that was one way I would know when he would get mad about something, uh, how he would act in his eyes and everything like that. And he passed it right away. Now, what's important about that, that's the whole, see, what I did is interesting. You got, you got, you got my bosses, which are crooked. You got all this other stuff. But the real hook of the book, Burl, the real hook, which I think has made it as popular as it is, is that I, I know a lot about organized crime from working it and just studying it in the whole bit. The many decades, let's say, before this 1984, organized crime was always a little bit ahead of the good guys. All right? A little bit ahead of the FBI, the local police, everything like that. Now, you do a timeline where stopping at 1984, this happens, this five-point program. 
Reagan goes on national TV, every channel that night tells the country about it. Here's what's going to happen, you know. Um, it changed everything around. You know, the, you got the RICO laws that were coming into effect. You got all this money for more prosecutors and, and programs and everything else. So now, right at that point, things started to change in the fight against organized crime, where, we, where you were always behind in catching these guys. Now you not only got equal with them, but you got ahead of them a little bit. And even that, from that point to where we are now, they've always, we've always stayed ahead of that's, the bad that's guys. Good. That's interesting. That uh, I was worried maybe Dolan would get bumped off. Remember the guy who wrote the book Dark Alliance? He won the Pulitzer oh, yeah. for that. But Dolan the... had many threats. I mean, as I did, but Dolan had many threats. People come out his door. He had pictures of dead bodies sent to him at the at the newspaper. There was bricks thrown to his car right on the newspaper parking lot. I mean, many many death threats in the mail. You know, you better stop this writing, or we're going to kill you. And uh, so, I mean, he he uh, this wasn't all glory for him. It was a no, lot of it. You know, as I was, uh, I had uh, Freeway Ricky Ross on the show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was the fellow who was making all the money selling cocaine here in Los Angeles, and the cocaine was coming from the government. And, <laughs> uh, and, and I had Ron, uh, Ron Tyler on, who used to uh, fly missions with, uh, with Ollie North. Uh, and, um, uh, Air America. Uh, yeah, and uh, I said to him, you know, uh, Reagan always said, oh, I don't remember, I don't know, on the whole Ron Contra thing. And he says, he says, well, he says, back when we were doing this, he said, we didn't call it the White House, we called it the Dope House. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. So, I mean, what I what I like about the book, and see, that I want the people to appreciate that, is that it actually shows the but the time where everything turned around in organized crime through a guy in a city called Stanford, Connecticut, by the name of Hello, Dolan. That was writing articles that, that was, wound uh, up changing, cute. changing up everything in the country. You know, it's, it's, it's really fascinating because now you got a, got situations where you have heads of crime families wearing wires. Oh, yeah. Now, now see, so much is different. You know, back then, all this cold, you know, you never, you never squeal, oh, yeah. you never did nothing. Nonsense. And, you know, I spoke, <laughs> if I can give you a little story, I spoke uh, about a year and a half ago in Las Vegas at a big, big function with Henry Hill. Packed house. In fact, they had 300 people in the other room watching it on a monitor. I think I was there for that one. Oh, I don't, maybe you were. Maybe you were. Now, at one point, you had a couple guys walk by the, the big theater in the hallway, and they spot Henry Hill, and they start calling him names, you know, this and that, you rat, blah, blah, blah. So I was emceeing, and I said, all right, let me, I'm going to do something a little different now that wasn't going to happen. But because of these gentlemen out in the hallway, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I said, you know, because everybody, you know, you read the New York Post or everything, rat this and rat that and the whole bit. I say to them, okay, everybody in here, you're brought in on arrest to the FBI. You're sitting there, almost like in the movie, Goodfellas. But you're sitting there maybe with your wife the whole bit, and they're saying to you, all right, look, you got a definite of 17 years you're going to have to serve if you're not going to help us. If you serve... We're going to, you know, cut it off, no time served, blah, 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 witness protection program or whatever. You make the choice right now. Now, I said to everybody there, I said, please, please do me a favor. Stand up if you're going to be one of those honorable, great guys that's going to say, bye, honey, CN17, or are you going to turn over your grandmother if you had to, not to get any jail time? Nobody stood up. I said, that's what I I thought. I said, but yet, 
there'll be people in here or other people across the country that will say, oh, look at that rat, that dirty rat. Yeah. How can you say that? Yeah, <laughs> the government's saying to you, you're going to serve 12. You're going to do 14 years without a chance of probation. Well, it's like Andrew, or, Andrew DiDonato said they, they'll make that same offer to three different guys, and two of them aren't going to get the deal. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing. So, you know, you're going to do, and not only that, see, like Andrew has said before, and, and what is true, people think that, okay, I can walk out of the FBI office, I told them, screw you, blah, 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 and they think they could walk back into the clubhouse, and oh, nobody's going to, everybody, you know, they, I told them off today, I went in there and I told them this, I'm never going to snitch, and he'd be out of there. They would kill him. That's right, because they, 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 they don't believe him, they don't trust him. Right, right. He'd never be a part of that anymore. So if, if that's going to happen, too, on top of it all, are you crazy? You're going to give your grandmother up for putting marijuana in the chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> I mean, you're going to do whatever you got to do. You know, it reminds me of, uh, you were talking about this Dolan guy. There's a fellow that I've had the pleasure of working with a few times, George Anastasia. Who, oh, yeah. Uh, do you know George? Do you ever met I, I, I know. I, I know who he is. I yeah. never met him. Uh, he decided to do. Gee, the, the the organized crime never gets to tell their side of the story. I think I'll be the, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the crime correspondent here and get fed uh, their side of the story. And he's having uh, lunch with one of these mobsters one day, and the guy says to George, "You know, I was supposed to kill you." <laughs> it says, uh, there was a hit on you. He says, uh, but uh, something else came up that was more important, and uh, we let it slide, and so then we decided not to do it. But I just wanted to let you know it was nothing personal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's always nothing personal, yeah, you know? Yeah, you're very personally dead if they kill you. Yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, again, like I said, it's amazing. you got a guy that's writing local news uh, for a paper in Connecticut, wins a Pulitzer, spends eight years there in the White House, and has never basically left working for uh, Rumsfeld and this one and that one, and uh, worked for both Bushes as an assistant security advisor. So all that from writing stories. It's, it's amazing. It's kind of like you want one of those, those stories to tell young people or yeah. a young reporter. Well, like I say, he was awful lucky because the guy who Dark Alliance uh, wins the Pulitzer, then gets you know uh, drop kicked down for the Sacramento Beat of writing uh, you know uh, covering the Garden Club or something, yeah, and then yeah. uh, mysteriously gets his uh, brains blown out. Well, what happened with Dolan, it's funny because when you read about his story, after he wrote the first couple of stories, he didn't even get to the police department. He had just public works and housing and different things like that. His editor didn't want him to really continue doing this, okay? Because he's saying, oh, I don't know, people, some people, a lot of people in the town are getting mad. Yeah, so he yeah. would try I'm to, sure he was he getting try, pressured. Right, he, he was, well, what they would do is they would fill up his eight hours of work time with Rotary Club meetings yeah, yeah, yeah. and go pitch, take some pictures the Girl Scouts are, are uh, selling the, the cookies over here. <laughs> but what he would do, he would then, his eight hours would be over, and he'd stay another eight hours doing all the, uh, all the corruption stuff. Right, because there was pressure being put on the newspaper <laughs> and on the editor yep. to shut this guy up. But what happened, though, let me show you how things changed around, though. After a certain amount of time at the beginning, when the papers realized that they couldn't even print enough papers to get them out <laughs> to the people, how, how much this had taken money, off. Money talks. That's right. It was kind of like, yeah, go ahead, Anthony, do what you got to do. Wow. Hey, Joe, give me another 20,000 papers here. Come on. <laughs> That's right. Circulation's yeah. up. That's <laughs> yeah. So it's so funny how the world works, you know? You go from one extreme to the other. Oh, yeah.
Today's hero is yesterday's thug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I believe, you know, whether it's a book about me or if this was a book about some other undercover cop that happened to work with Dolan and or had bad bosses, to me, I think it's an intriguing read. Just because of you've got so many things going on here, and, and it's really telling the story of how the day organized crime changed. You know, it reminds me if we had uh, Georgia Durante, who wrote the uh, great book, The Company uh, She Keeps, about uh, her life being a, a mafia wife. And yeah. I asked her, I said, when this book came out, weren't you afraid of reprisals from the mob? And she said, no. She said, most of the guys I wrote about either were dead or in prison or they liked me so much. And it was true that they didn't care. She says, what I was worried about was the feds. And I said, why is that? She says, because they were laundering our money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she says, that's who I was delivering the money to to be laundered was the, was the feds. Well, it's the same, you know, the same thing with me. People ask me all the time when I speak, oh, my God, aren't you afraid? And I say to them, look, this is 30 to 40 years ago. I said, everybody, truthfully, everybody is dead that we talk about on there. I said, number one. And number two, God saved my life back then through death threats and front page of the paper once my cover was finally blown after a long period of time. I said, I'm not going to worry about it now. Yeah. I said, that's, that's like that's uh, for Kenji, sure. Kenji Gallo, who wore a wire for seven years. Yeah, I spoke with Kenji. Yep, yep. And he got death threats before coming on the show. Uh, there were two attempts on his life uh, as well before he came on the show. And I said, well, we haven't had any of our, our guests be killed on us. We just kill careers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we got to take another 60-second break. Vito Colucci Jr. will be right back on True Crime Uncensored. If you own a cell phone, and we know you do... Or talk to an imaginary president in a chair in front of Albertsons. You are no longer tied to your computer. You are now safe to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio app from RadioLoyalty.com. The smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your cell phone or Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio. The demons of decadence change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Go ahead. It's now available free at RadioLoyalty.com. Just punch in Outlaw Radio. the legendary Burl Bear, taking time out of my busy schedule of being Uncle Crazy on Outlaw Radio to remind you that I'm also an award-winning true crime author. Yes, amazing but true. My latest masterpiece, Body Count, the true story of the Spokane serial killer, Robert Lee Yates Jr. He'd pick up lovely young prostitutes, take them out in his car, and they'd wind up extremely dead. About, oh, maybe 18 to 25 different people. Yep, killed him. They finally caught him, though, and he's back in Washington State Prison where he used to be a corrections officer. Shocking true story. You're invited to buy it, own it, read it, believe it. And in the digital download version for your Kindle or Nook, there are bonus photographs not found in the print edition. One more reason to get Body Count by Burl Bear. And while you're at it, pick up Headshot. 
which is the one just before that. Mom said kill Fatal Beauty and also get our Berry Flowers wonderfully edited edition called Masters of True Crime. 18 true crime authors all in one book. And I wind up between the covers with Catherine Ramsland and Camille Kimball, just to mention a few. And now back to True Crime Uncensored. That crashing sound was Mark C.G. Boyer throwing a bottle of soda pop into the garbage can. (laughs) I've got talent. We're back with Vito Colucci, Jr., author of the great new book, Rogue Town, documenting not only his exciting adventures working under corrupt (laughs) superiors and catching bad guys, and uh, his buddy winning the, uh, the Pulitzer Prize. And there's the beautiful and talented Marie Mackey just rumbled into the room. Hi there, Marie. It's warm. It's warm. It's warm. Hi, hi, Marie. He says hi to you, Marie. He says hi. Marie is bodacious woman, uh, Vito. Uh, How you doing, Marie? <laughs> How, uh, do you not want a uh, Yiddish? Uh, no, but I can tell you that color looks great on Marie. That's nice. <laughs> well, there's a, there's, nice, a term, there's a Yiddish term called Zoftig. Zoftig. <laughs> Zoftig. Yeah, she's yes. Zoftig. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's not an insult. Well, yes, yeah, so they, they used to say healthy. Healthy, it's a healthy yeah. young girl. Yeah. Yeah. Bet she's a hey, good bro. swimmer. Yes. Um, well, one thing I one thing I like to bring up, uh, <laughs> people that just know me say over the recent years, a lot of times when I do shows or whatever, producers say, Man, you got a you got a good sense of humor. You you laugh about these things and I said I said, Well, I said, Let me explain something to you. I said, If you would have met me back in that era, you wouldn't have liked me because I was depressed. I was a not, not a nice guy to deal with. I said, but when you go through a shootout and when you go through a extended uh, time of wearing a wire and, and infiltrating two crime families as well as your bosses and with death threats on the front page of papers and you get out of all of that, I said, I, I, so I'm, I'm a totally different person now, Burl. I mean, I mean, I feel blessed that I lived through everything, and I just, you know, it, it's amazing. Well, there's so I have a whole like different a, perspective. There's nothing like having a gun to your head to give you a sense of perspective. I had well, one guy one time show me a bullet with my name on it. Really? <laughs> wow. Can I frame that? Yeah, I wish. Yeah. I, I'd like, no, I wouldn't. I'd like to have that bullet as a memento. Not in my head, wow. mind you. Yeah. But, you know, to actually see a bullet with my name, you know, carved on it. Yeah. Yeah, if you could find that burrow, you could get a good eight bucks on eBay yeah, for that. I know I could. Yeah, I mean, actually, a yeah. girl would have to pay the eight bucks. <laughs> yeah, I would have to pay. I did. Pay, I paid twenty five bucks for a picture of myself on eBay. <laughs> did you really? Yeah, it was a great uh, publicity photo taken back in the nineteen seventies, uh, and uh, they, I wow. guess they, they bought up uh, all the photos from some newspaper chain, and there were these great photos of me that I hadn't seen in God, uh-huh. ever, you know, forever, because something I'd never seen before. Because because they weren't used. You know, they'd use one out of five or ten and get a whole bunch of them for sale. So anyway, that's a whole different story. But, uh, yeah, well, once you've been in a situation where your life is on the line, or people are planning on killing you, or they try to kill you, you don't get too worked up about a lot of other stuff. You no, know? you know, it, it was it was very interesting, though, Burl, over the year and a half of doing the book, having to go back and the newspaper articles where you say to yourself, oh, wow, I had forgotten about this. Oh, look at this. I mean, it was it was a time really of reflection and going back to see how everything really was in my life as, as well as an entire city, you know, so there was a lot there to do. Well, you know, they say rust never sleeps, and I think it's the same with corruption. Then, right. Uh, I was, I've been, uh, I noticed that the... Uh Problems with uh, this particular little city continue to this day. 
It, it does. It does. Why would you say that? I have to ask you. I, well, it seems that... Uh, You've done research? I've done research. It looks like we have uh, some people who were uh, in uh, human resources that were mm-hmm. stealing uh, cash and... Uh, yep. Yeah, uh, yep, very good. And they, and they were uh, uh, falsifying overtime. Oh, yeah, it's it's happening. You know, I, I, I spoke at several places um, in, in, in Connecticut once the book came out. I was there for extended periods of time. And somebody in the audience said, but what about now, Vito? What do you think about what's going on now? And I said, well, I said, look, I said, let me explain something to you. I said, I am not involved in working this anymore. I do read the paper, and I know from talking to a lot of people what the rumors and innuendos are. I said, which are a lot. I said, like it was in my day. Rumors and innuendos were all over the place. And so I said, when you have that, though, when you have that many rumors and innuendos, like it's going now again, somebody has to look into it. So I said, because if you all sit back, it's going to become what it once was. And not only there, though, guys, it's happening across the country. It seems like, and believe me, I'm I'm a big backer of cops. I talk on all the TV shows, okay? And most of the time I'll back them up, though sometimes I'll say they did a horrible job. But unfortunately, you're hearing more and more of this across the country. Like, bro, what you said about back in Washington, it, those things happen. You know, when you have, Henry Hill wrote on the cover of, of this book, one time we were speaking, and he, uh, I asked him to write, and he said, yeah, and he looked over at me, he said, well, you know, I know your story. He said, when organized crime controls the police department, they control the entire city. Damn right. So, I remember I said to him, I'm going to use that. Can I use that? Oh, i use whatever you want, he said. But I, so that is it right there. If you're a cop and you rise to the rank of a captain or, a, you know, chief, deputy chief, whatever, when you have power like that, you've got to understand something. You're in a city where, say, me and Burl, we were on opposite sides of the law. We grew up together, though. We played football together. We went to high school. So now, you know, one of us just says, Burl says to me, hey, Vito, look, I don't want to do anything out of school here, but just do me a favor. Next time you hear maybe that the feds are in town, just kind of whisper it to me. You know, and it starts off like that. Christmas time comes, and all of a sudden, Burl stops by some place with an envelope of $500. Now, it's just Merry Christmas. No reason at all. You know, and and that's how it starts. Right, right. That's how it starts, guys. Yeah, and uh, even in small towns, and I I wrote about that in... uh, Back in Walla Walla, when you uh, punch boards were uh, were illegal, you know, different gambling things mm-hmm. were illegal, and yeah. and when the state uh, inspector guy would come by, the, the chief of police would go into the pastime and say, "Take the boards down next week." <laughs> <laughs> we had a, we had a guest on uh, not too long ago who whose prime motivation for becoming a police officer was to facilitate his criminal activities. Yeah, it was Michael uh, Giardino. The most corrupt Chili Pimpin in, in, yeah, Chili Pimpin in Atlantic City. Great book. If you get a wow. chance to read it, it's the guy is so honest. It's shocking. Wow. Uh, and he became a cop specifically to be a corrupt cop. Never got arrested, but he wrote his memoirs about all the stuff he did and how he did it and why he did it. And who he did it to. <laughs> who he did well, it to. Think, think about that, guys. Atlantic City, I think it was 1976, they opened the first casino. Uh, 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 
what is it, uh, what's his name's place? Uh, I can't even think of it, the first one that was, that was open there. But what do you have as one by one they open? You got a lot of money, you got garbage, uh, a lot of garbage contracts there, you got the union of all the people there, you got all kinds of stuff going on. You got Nikki Scarfa from uh, Philadelphia, big mob boss, he wants to move into that territory, get his peace. You want uh, everybody else, you want Rhode Island, Rhode Island guys coming in, they want to get a little peace or somehow, and that's how it happens. They see all this money now starting someplace. So that was a. I got. I got to read that book. That 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 yeah, sounds it's like called, a great it's called book. Chile Pimpin in Atlantic City by uh, Michael Giardino, uh, and I call him America's favorite corrupt cop. He gets, <laughs> a, he gets a kick out of that. Yeah. Uh, the lead into that is uh, um, any of the individuals that you uh, you dealt with during that time period. Um, was there an interest or an intent to be corrupt, or did it, or were they all just subverted over time? Well, let's let's talk a, a little bit about the two cops in question very quickly. Uh, my yeah. lieutenant, my lieutenant. My lieutenant, Larry Hogan, he, from everything I hear from uh, a lot of the other guys, he was a great cop for many years. Uh, I talked to a guy who was his partner for many years. He was a great cop. Something happens along the line where you get that first taste of things. Duke Morris, uh, before Duke Morris died, I saw him at the railroad station. I thought I was going to be threatened again by him, but he wanted to talk to me before he got on the, on the train. He said, you'll never see me again. He said, I'm taking off. And But his thing was, as a young black cop, rookie cop in the 1950s, um, the brass would say to him, okay, Duke, we want you to go up this street, Selick Street. There's a couple clubs there. This guy's doing this. Grab him. We'll put some guys there back up. And, and Duke would say, Lieutenant, I really don't want to do that. One's my uncle and one's my... No, 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 you go do it. And he looked at me, because this is after everything had hit the fan. He just wanted he wanted me to try to understand. I'm just telling you, Colucci, so you can maybe understand what I did was wrong, but let me tell you something, what they did to me. He said, they tell me, go over there and buy some uh, tickets. Go put in some bets. With I can't, man. That's my best friend in the whole world. I said, I don't do what he does, but I don't want to do it. Oh, no, you That's go and right. do it. Yeah. So, you know, that was a horrible situation for him to be put in. It shouldn't have led to where he be- became uh, the drug master and, and, and ran the whole empire and killed people that wanted to go on his side. But once you get in, we know it says once you get in so far, you can't get out. That's right. That's a good point. Can I, uh, can I mention, Burl, so where they can get the book oh, and everything? Please do. Please do. Okay, uh, well, you, they can get the book on Amazon, uh, first of all. It's called Rogue Town. Uh, if anybody's interested in looking at my first book, it's Inside the Private Eyes of a P.I., also on, Rogue, uh, also on Amazon. That's the story of my 20-something years being a private detective to high-profile cases. But Rogue Town is my real baby. If you like true crime, ladies and gentlemen, I, I have to tell you, you're going to enjoy this book. City Under the Stranglehold of Organized Crime, the um, the the uh, reporter that came in and, and brought the city to its knees and a cop who wore a wire. Uh, Amazon, it's uh, at Barnes & Noble. If they're out of it or don't have it there, yell and scream. Yeah, okay, books, you have my permission. A will have it. I mean, it'll only be a disorderly conduct charge. Don't worry about <laughs> that. You can, is it available as a digital download? Yes, it is. It is uh, through Amazon. And uh, if anybody wants to ask me any questions, please go. My email is uh, Vito at, V-I-T-O at, ColucciPI.com, C-O-L-U-C-C-I-P-I.com. And my website is ColucciPI.com. You'll see me on the uh, Larry King and all those other crazy shows. And tell them to mention your radio show. 
Well, my radio show is Crime Time with Vito Colucci, P.I. It's on the Business Talk Radio and the Lifestyle Talk Radio networks. It's on, like Burl says, um, it was at 8 o'clock Pacific Time, right. 11 o'clock Eastern Time. But if you miss the show for any reason on the Sunday night, it goes right to the archives. And any time during the week, uh, you know, if you're bowling at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> you leave the bowling alley, just put it on. You'll, you'll listen to it on the way home. Yeah, especially this week because I'm his guest. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's very important. A fascinating nut job is there ever will be. <laughs> yeah, me or Vito or both. No, but, yeah. I don't know Vito. <laughs> but, bro, you do have a great staff there. I'm so impressed. Yeah, well, he does when he does research. We call him our fact checker, and he does check facts. Wow. Well, well. Um, as as far as the internet will take me. <laughs> <laughs> right. See, my, now my technique in, in true crime is. And I always tell people, I spend more time with criminals than I do with cops. Right. It's true. And the thing, the thing is, and, and I've talked to other true crime authors who use the same technique I do because they have the same maybe whatever type of personality. But criminals will talk to me. They won't talk to cops. They won't talk to attorneys. Right. Uh, we'll talk to newspaper reporters, but they will tell me everything. Well, that's because they look in your eyes and their eyes are spinning. <laughs> they go, that's, a good, that's a very good point, Burl. So since I became a private detective, I've learned a lot that people will talk to me as a private detective because I'm no longer a cop. Right. I don't have to read them rights. Right. I don't have to do all that stuff. It's kind of like whisper in my ear, and they do. Yeah. And they tell me stuff, and, and then they go away. That's right. Uh, I, I tell them, I said, listen, as long as you're not talking about a murder... If it, right. was, if it was seven years ago, you can tell me everything. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And they do. I'll tell you one thing that uh, you might be able to be helpful to me on, and I don't know if you can. And I'm well, you're in Vegas now. Uh, one book that I've, I've wanted to do for some time, and I started doing research on it, I'm trying to pull t- put together my sources, is no one has yet documented the Latino gangs in Vegas. And there's a great history there that hasn't been written. And... Mm. Uh, I mean, it knows about the you know, the mafia gangs and all that, but not the Hondurans, the Cubans, uh, etc. And that's a that's a whole a whole other episode, a whole other dimension of uh, of organized crime that uh, that no one's really documented. And I keep telling the people who were involved because I know a lot of criminals. I tell them, you know, if you don't document it now, your cultural history of crime will be lost. That's right. I mean, the world, the entire country has changed so much. I mean, being in my 60s now, from the the era growing up where uh, my biggest thrill was watching uh, Fess Parker and Buddy Epson do Davy <laughs> yeah. Crock- Crockett. Yeah, hey, you i got to mention that. Did you ever wonder in the, the, the Walt Disney version where you have Santa Ana's army is coming with giant ladders to yes. attack the Alamo? Well, they're right. slapping these ladders. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, how about, how about the old Superman series, the one? in black and white and uh yeah yeah yeah, i mean you had uh uh and and all clark kent ever did was take his glasses off and nobody recognized i know isn't that amazing and i i I take my glasses off and And everyone still knows you're out of your freaking mind (laughs) yeah that's true vito colucci jr the book is rogue town program is crime time one of my favorite guests and i'll be on his show uh sunday night so thanks again vito have you back soon and hope to see you in vegas next time what a wonderful guy well, you know, Magic Matt Allen is not here today. He's off being a movie star with Burt Reynolds. And that means, ladies and gentlemen, that... Uh, this is going to be a major CF. <laughs> a major fiasco. Remember Major Fiasco? He was related to Major Hoople. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Daddy, he's going to be the son of, of, of General Fubar. Yeah, General Fubar. Yeah. Uh, R- Ralph Odierna will be here. Ralph Odierna is famous for having so many straw man arguments, they think he's Ray Bolger. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta admit that's a good line. That's very funny. <laughs> yeah, so we all wait to think of that one. Thanks a month. I listen to you drive Lori Downey Jr. crazy with that stuff. <laughs> she she cracks up by about 11 p.m. She's out of her mind. <laughs> anyway, Outlaw Radio, the demons of decadence will be ruling the universe momentarily. Oh, come on. Be frightening, folks. Hey, just when you thought it was safe to turn on your computer. You'll wind up with Outlaw Radio. Come on. Welcome to Cyberspace. I'm 